0: Good morning. I'm Dr. Johnson with Johnson Medical Associates. I'm happy to have with me this morning, Dr. Center. Uh, Dr. Center is a person that I've known for a long time with great expertise in brain health and a background with functional medicine. He was a Marine, a uh, combat Marine, uh, went on to get his uh, PhD. In psychology mm-hmm. and has been practicing psychology now for how long? Almost 20 years. 20 years mm-hmm. and so I'm also very proud to have his son work for me in and do similar things as to what we're going to talk about this morning. Uh, his son's name is Cameron Center and uh, Cameron was to be with us this morning but he's not feeling well so uh, You'll get his dad (laughs) along with uh, myself to talk about how we can have better brain health, how we can feel better, function better in today's environment. Today's environment is quite challenging, as most of us have experienced, uh, with uh, uncertainty in many, many areas in our life, uh, constant bombardment with social media, Um, not knowing who to trust and what to uh, really rely on as far as factual information. And then this, uh, in its totality, then causes mental stress, uh, sleep problems, uh, and eventually it affects our health and our daily function. So in your background, uh, you've worked with functional medicine people. You have your own clinic where you work and focus on brain health. Uh, What should a person look for uh, if they aren't feeling well, uh, having trouble with their thought processes, having trouble with their mental acuity? Uh, So many people just come in and say, uh, I have brain fog. Uh, They can't get their thoughts organized um, and a lot of what I see is uh, they're just overloaded or they aren't getting good sleep or they're having uh, reactions to different foods they're eating um, and their brains do not function well in in our clinic in Johnson Medical Associates uh, we do QEGs neurocognitive assessments and we also assess for food sensitivity uh, con- Cushions that have occurred in the past, a brain injury, which all hinder our sense of well-being and our ability to function. Uh, when patients come to you, how how do you approach them and what do you look at to help them get organized and how to approach uh, better health?
1: So we, we kind of view um, the journey to health as, as part of, you know, the overall Life journey. I mean, so we're always doing things that affect our health. Uh, the foundations of health are really the pillars of diet, sleep, and exercise. And so, when we, we want to understand why people are struggling, you know, the first thing that we're going to want to assess is, you know, where are you in terms of diet, sleep, and exercise habits? Um, it's important to know things like, you know, your genetic vulnerabilities. So we do functional genetic testing. Uh, We do neurotransmitter and stress hormone testing. We do food sensitivity tests. Uh, We also spend a lot of time talking about sources of stress. Um, And any aspect of our life is the potential source for stress. So diet, sleep, and exercise can be stress points, but so can financial stressors, educational stressors, uh, relational, emotional, spiritual. Uh, All of those things can be sources of stress. And so... In order to understand why a person might be struggling with this, that, or the other issue and how can we restore them to health, we really have to know, you know, what's going on in the background. And many people are unaware of the things that they're doing that actually are working against their health. Uh, They may not recognize that uh, using smart devices uh, within 45 minutes of going to bed is going to affect their ability to go to sleep or that having pets in the bed with them is gonna affect uh, their ability to maintain sleep because our pets have sleep cycles that are well inside of our own and as they move around, they're waking us up. Same thing with kids. I mean, it's why we discourage having children in the bed, even for young adults, that um, they, we need to keep those things separate. Um, when we're uh, not sleeping well or when we're fatigued, Uh, Many times uh, we will eat the things that exacerbate that, make make it worse. So uh, simple and refined uh, sugars, simple carbs, um, that using a Coke in the morning to wake yourself up is a terrible idea, uh, as is that vente sugary drink that you get from your favorite in a dispenser of caffeine. Those things are actually working against health. Uh, Most of us that attain the age of 30 have had one diagnosable mild traumatic brain injury, whether we remember it or not. So uh, TBIs are really common. And if they're not properly treated, and if you're not exercising, and if you have poor diet, the consequences of those head injuries can last for years. We've seen people who've had head injuries 30 and 40 years in their past, they're continuing to cause problems in terms of attention, focus, concentration, uh, attention, stamina, uh, be, the ability to stay on task, complete a task. And so uh, our model of assess, uh, address, and reassess is a constant going back to those fundamentals of health and saying, what's going on with diet, sleep, and exercise? What are your current stressors? How do you handle those stresses? And then uh, where may you not be doing things that are particularly helpful for you that are gonna affect you in terms of your, your mind, will, emotions, um, energy, and things like that.
0: Wow, that's overwhelming.
1: It can be. <laughs> it can be very overwhelming. And that's, the constant, that's, that's a common response amongst our patients, right? right? Is that, oh my gosh, you've told me all these things, I just feel overwhelmed, I don't know where to start. And uh, so we generally have people start at the easiest thing uh, to address. And so if the easiest thing to address is making some simple dietary changes, well then we encourage those. Or maybe it's to take a supplement, uh, like an antioxidant, uh, N-acetylcysteine, or alpha-lipoic acid, or uh, some of the very easy things to do. Or it may be to eliminate something from the diet. Maybe cutting those two sodas a day down to maybe one or two sodas a week. You know, and, and to do that gradually. We don't want to do anything drastically because generally drastic changes don't last. We want to start low, go slow, so that we can maintain the gains that we get from making these changes. Because if you try to change too many things too quickly, it, it just generally all kind of crumbles.
0: Yeah. So what I'm hearing is it's it's important to focus on what the individual that comes in that's having problem, what their main issue is that they come in with. So if they come in with a problem of focus or come in with a problem of fatigue, then to approach a diagnostic modality uh, or modalities that will help them. Um, I know at, at my office, if someone comes in and they're tired and fatigued, one of the first things is to look at their diet, look at their habits, do an overnight oximeter study to see whether they're desaturating, uh, with, uh, low oxygen levels during the night, which right. does affect their sleep. Absolutely. And then there's different devices, uh, that the person wears that can look at their sleep patterns. And we were talking about that before the show, uh, about which ones are the best and, and what the ones work well to kind of help us look at her, at her sleep patterns. Um, so when a person, uh, Comes in and wants brain health, and they have a certain pattern. Are there certain uh, initial screening assessments to help get focused to help you focus on what the patient uh, is concerned about, and then how to assess whether that's the real pro- uh, problem or whether there's an underlying problem which we deal about in. A medicine on a daily basis, looking at the underlying, the triggering causes. You know,
1: a lot of people come in and they want a diagnosis, right? They want to tell me what's wrong with me and then give me something to fix that. And so um, I don't know that's particularly helpful when we're talking about a functional perspective because many things that we're going to give you are things to do, not things to take. And I think there's a, a one of the things that's been a, a consequence of the technological innovations and, and the medical field just broadly is the idea that there's a pill for everything and so what we want to do is disabuse people of the notion that there's a pill for this Um, many things uh, are going to be uh, directed at making lifestyle changes uh, that you can that you can do Um, one of the things i like about there's a popular author out there by, by the name of Jordan Peterson right now, the psychologist. And one of the things he says is, what thing, what, what's one thing that you can do that you will do today that will make your life better? And so there's a, there's a whole range of things that we can ask our patients to do that they can do, but it's a different question altogether is, will you do that? And so when I ask people to stop drinking sodas, they can do that but a lot of them won't do it. They're just not willing to. And so part of the assessment is, what are the things you can do? What are you able to do? And what are the things you're willing to do? I'm not gonna ask you to do something you're not willing to do because it's gonna frustrate you and make you angry at me. And then that puts me in a position where I can't help you anymore. And so our assessments are gonna be oriented toward finding out what a person's strengths are, what, they're, what they're, their current abilities are. And most people, when they come to us, feel like they don't have any strengths. You know, they don't feel like they have any resources. And but so part of- they're just out of control. You're right, and so part of what we're trying to do for them is to reestablish, no, there are things you can do. You may not feel like it right now, but there are things that you can do they are gonna help you get better. And many of those things you already know how to do. So we're just going to remind you of the thing, those things you already know how to do that work and then remind you to, to implement those as a part of a, a, you know, a daily strategy. So we start with uh, some just basic questionnaires. Um, I'm an Amen Method uh, professional and uh, Dr. Amen has taught us to ask some very good questions about diet, sleep, and exercise. Uh, we ask about a head injury a minimum of five times. Because most people who have a mild traumatic brain injury actually will forget that they had it. And it's not until you just probe incessantly. They go, oh, you know, I I fell out of the high chair when I was two and then down the stairs when I was four. Does that count? Yeah, that counts. (laughs) Uh, Or I was in an injury on my bicycle and I cracked my helmet uh, when I was 14. Does that count? Yes, that counts. And so we we assess with questionnaires. I do a protracted interview. I've just found out that – being lavish with my time up front saves me an inordinate amount of time later and trying to figure out what's going on. So I, my interviews with my patients can last anywhere from an hour and a half to two hours where we go over all of those, you know, questionnaires that we gave them. And then from that, I can select what instruments I want to give in terms of uh, cognitive tests, neurocognitive tests, uh, do the EEG, QEG, the, um, take that, whole head recording, right. um, then do functional genetic tests, uh, neurotransmitter, stress hormone tests. Um, and, and sometimes when people are not able to afford all that testing, cause it can be quite expensive. Then we'll do like a Zyto scan, which is, um, a way of using galvanic skin response or our, our body's natural electrical communication system. And to, uh, assess what the body is wanting or needing uh, or maybe some of the things that are going on in terms of uh, viral load, bacterial load, heavy metal load. Um, it's not nearly as accurate as the lab results, but it, it may give us a little bit of quick insight, and and also be able to help those that maybe not be able to afford that. So those are the kind of things we do to assess.
0: Well, you were talking about head injury, and I had a patient this week that came in and said, "Oh, I haven't had a head injury," and. Uh, he I sent him down to get the QEEG to look at brain function and it also looks at traumatic brain injury uh, and whether you've had traumatic brain injury and sure enough it showed traumatic brain injury and came back in and said no I never had it uh, and didn't realize that I had a traumatic brain injury until I went to get my hair cut and the person was washing my hair and said what's this this lump back here in the back of your head <laughs> and then it dawned on him that he'd fallen and well he had been struck in the back of the head at age three and had to have staples in his head right and that the head injury that was showing up was from age three which was very significant in the diagnostic QEEG eeg uh, exam
1: yeah so, so as a retired you know, military guy, combat vet, um, having spent over 20 years in the Marine Corps, um, th- that's a head injury rife environment. I mean, you just stay in long enough, you're gonna get one. Um, and things like dynamic overpressure from explosions or IEDs, you don't have to have shrapnel on your body, you get a closed head one. percussion Right, ex- exactly. And the concussive forces are incredible. But we live here in Texas. I mean, we're the football state, right? And so uh, almost all of our you know, young adult males have played football at some level um a lot of our, our girls are playing soccer and so um, if you had one or two wet footballs uh, or, or soccer balls you know you're you're going to sustain subconcussive forces and if you get enough of those they equal a head injury uh, and so, and we tend to live lifestyles now that are head injury inducing lifestyles, and so um, we can't mitigate against every risk, but we can wear helmets and things like that. Yeah,
0: but it could be as simple as raising your head up underneath a cupboard. A- exactly right, a- and and banging your head or on the mantle. Absolutely right, yeah. and then it affects your brain health, your your function aspect a- of a- it.
1: Absolutely, absolutely, and so the 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 thing about head injuries is that uh, and we've been researching this now for a good 40 50 years really intensively and that we've we've found that uh there's 1.5 million americans that are going to get a tbi this year so you know it's pretty common yeah it's really common so of those 1.5 million 80 to 90 percent are mild traumatic brain injuries very few are moderate or severe And if you've had a moderate or severe head injury, you're likely to remember that uh, because you spent some time in the hospital, you had, you know, positive neuroimaging, you know, you may have a gray matter leaking onto your shoulder, I mean, you're going to know it. The mild ones, however, uh, the further you get away from, less likely are to remember that you had one. And if you've had several of them, you're even more likely to not remember that you had one because one of the effects of a head injury is it affects your memory. Right. And so. so head injuries are incredibly uh, important for us to understand how they're playing a role in your sleep, attention, focus, um, irritability, uh, all of those things, and in, in short-term memory, uh, really important.
0: So the the message to the audience is, is that if you're having these problems, as you just mentioned, which is focus, irritability, memory, uh, it pays to look back, think about your history, Uh, what has happened to you from uh, banging your head, being knocked out, falling off your bicycle, uh, and then getting assessed. And that assessment is really pretty easy uh, with a QEEG. And it's quantitative. It's factual. uh, And it's based on very, very good science. uh, And it's non-invasive. And uh, we do that Johnson Medical Associates, you do that at, at your practice in Fort Worth. Um, Cameron, your son, is an expert at this, He's, and he works for me. And thanks to you, uh, yeah. you got us hooked up, and we are able to evaluate that. And it's a very valuable part of an assessment for health in general because your sleep patterns and how your brain works determines what you do each day.
1: Yeah, the reason I got into this field to very begin with was I was, um, I was working in the hospital, doing hospital-based um, uh, therapy intake assessments with the psychiatric patients. And I just became really disillusioned with the, you know, kind of, here's your label, now here's the pill that goes with that label. And um, I was told by um, the uh, medical director of the hospital I was working at, hey, how, why don't you read this book? um change your brain change your life by daniel amon and see what you think i mean you you're apparently disillusioned with the way we're doing things he's got a different way and so when i was reading that book there was one sentence in there that just really hooked me and i mean i'll that was that was well over 20 years ago that i read that book and i still remember to this day uh reading the statement why are psychiatrists the only physicians in all of medicine that don't image the organ that they work with and i was like wait I had to read that again. And so uh, Dr. Amon, uh, uh had also been doing neurofeedback, which is the interventional side of QEG, not the right. assessment side. And uh, he actually started in that before he got into SPECT imaging. And so um, as, as not since I'm not a physician, uh, I couldn't do SPECT, but I could do the EEG QEG. And so that's actually what launched me Uh, in into my career and so being able to look at the EEG having a a symptom you know pattern uh, that I can go back into the EEG and look and say well where does that thing live so attention tends to live in the frontal lobes and then the anterior cingulate those are the things responsible for attention Um, our mood you know temporal lobe frontal lobe uh, visual processing occipital lobe and then there's more discrete areas within those for more discrete functions. But when we start looking at the brain from a functional perspective, then we start getting rid of all these labels about depression, anxiety, whatever the The deal is, if your brain doesn't work right, you can't work right. It's not like you don't want to, you just can't. Right. And so we want to remove those labels that tend to be uh, debilitating just in and of themselves. You know, some... I can remember working in the hospital and I have somebody, uh, a new patient come in and I go to interview them and I'll say, Hey, I'm Dr. Center, I'm here to work with you. And they go, well, I'm bipolar. And I said, well, it's funny because the chart says your name is Bob Smith uh, not bipolar. And so you're, you're not your label. And right. so let's get rid of the labels and find out what's going on. What's ha- What's going on genetically, what's happened with your life and circumstances, What your diet, exercise and sleep patterns look like. What are some substances that you may be taking that are not necessarily good for you? We know that alcohol can be a mild sedative, but it can also tear up your sleep. Um, take too much of it, it's intoxicating. Um, a lot of people think that marijuana, particularly active ingredient, THC, tetrahydrocannabinol, they think that it's uh, not uh, harmful. But if you start taking that in your early teen years and you continue to take it, you're gonna have a 10-point permanent loss of IQ. And I don't know any of us who can afford to lose 10 points of IQ. I certainly can't. And so um, these things that we're ingesting are going to affect our brain health. And we just need to be really careful of what we're taking into our bodies.
0: Well, you see so many people now uh, having trouble functioning in the workplace or have anxiety. Um, And what we're talking about today is how to look at the underlying stimulating factors that create this in an individual whether it's their brain hormones, we talk about measuring, uh, those are neurotransmitters like serotonin, epinephrine, norepinephrine, dopamine, PEA, uh, which involve your mood, your uh, sense of well-being, your focus, uh, your energy level. Uh, So it's important that we look at brain function as we do with QEEG. Yes. And then we look at brain hormones, which uh, affect our mood Uh, in standard type medicine a lot of people are placed on different mood altering medications well typically we don't have a prozac deficiency or xanax deficiency precisely we have brain dysfunction from whatever underlying reason whether it may be uh, injury as we've been talking about uh, diet uh, whether it's an actual food allergy or whether it's a food intolerance. Uh, I see many people that are gluten intolerant yes. or are close to having celiac disease, and there's a genetic test that we do for gluten intolerance. And I find that people are much more compliant with a diet, a gluten-free diet, if they know genetically that they can't tolerate it.
1: Absolutely. And yeah. so
0: I use not only the test as a diagnostic tool, but also as an incentive uh, in understanding process so that they are more compliant and understand what will happen if they are not compliant.
1: And we, we don't assume that any of our patients want to feel badly. I mean, right. if you knew that this thing was making you feel bad and you knew that that was the source of it, you probably wouldn't do that. And so we approach our patients with the information that, what we're going to give you is gonna give you some insights as to why you may be feeling this way. And there may be a combination, it's almost always a combination of something that you're doing or not doing in combination with your uh, your genetic makeup that's causing these things to happen. So if you have the gluten intolerance or celiac that has a genetic basis, uh, and it may be different from siblings children or parents you know maybe one parent that had it but the other one didn't and so there may be things that people in your household can eat that that you can't and that becomes a challenge particularly if you're the mom who has the issue and you're trying to feed these people and yet there's things that you're having to make for them that you can't eat or vice versa because very difficult a meal plan for a family around the individual variations and yet it's what you've got to do. Well,
0: I find it's the easiest that the mom has the problem. Yes. (laughs) Mom (laughs) just makes everybody eat what she eats. Exactly. But also the offspring then have one of her genes. And so if she has quite severe gluten intolerance, then most likely the offspring or the offspring will have one of those genes. Right. If you really ask the question, well, what are their bowel habits? Do they have abdominal pain? Exactly. Are they getting sick frequently? Uh, then they're having the problem too. And a lot of times uh, mom gets her diet straightened out and the kids do a lot, lot better in their attention, less hyperactivity, uh, sleeping better. Well, Uh, actually
1: we've kind of wandered into accidentally, but maybe on purpose that, that really the root of all diseases we think of disease is inflammation. And so when we look in the brain, for example, Everything that you can think of as a brain health diagnosis, whether it's depression, anxiety, PTSD, all the alphabet soup, OC, OCD, ODD, all that all that stuff right. is pro-inflammatory. And so um, if we look at the source of, of inflammation, uh, diet is right up there, but also lack of sleep is inflammatory. And uh, once you get an inflamed system, uh, it, it, the brain is actually the, at the tail end of that. That means the rest of the system is already inflamed. There's very few things where the brain is the primary source of inflammation. Encephalitis is an example of, you know, where you get a, you know, a, a bug bite and it, and it goes to your noggin, uh, or you get you know something that affects the central nervous system in terms of inflammation.
0: Yeah, well, that's like when West Nile virus came through. Precisely. And, and they had encephalitis from the West Nile virus, which, and people have had long-term effects from that. Uh, and so that's where the brain is affected.
1: Right. Primarily. But the brain has its own immune system. And, and so it, it tends to do a pretty good job of, of keeping inflammation down. But um, the way that the brain and gut communicate, are, there's nine times as many pathways coming up to the brain as there is going back down. And so if the gut's not happy, it's telling the brain that, that, that there's an issue.
0: Exactly. And that's the vagus nerve, just for people who are wondering. And it's the longest nerve, the biggest nerve from the brain it's to the her tenth,
1: body, the 10th cranial nerve the the word vagus actually means wandering in uh, in latin the, it's it's the wandering nerve and it innervates everything north to south and so um one of the one of the things that we've done for chronic uh constipation particularly our kids with autism is use vagal nerve stimulation to improve vagal nerve tone because right. uh, low tone results in in constipation and um, and there are certain medications and other kinds of interventions that will induce uh, constipation. And we found that coffee enemas will straighten that out really quickly um, and, and, and keep people away from the, you know, the taking the medication for this problem and then taking another medication for the symptoms that the first medication caused and then another medication for the second medication's side effects. And so... Um, we try to use as many of these natural approaches. And some of them come to us from traditional Chinese medicine and others come from uh, traditional uh, Western folk medicine. But there's a lot of good plants and uh, dietary interventions. Just staying hydrated will help you keep from being constipated. So there's a lot of things that we can do in that regard. Yeah,
0: well, just a side note, uh, you talked about constipation, irritable bowel and that. And, of course, we see that in autistic kids. We see that in adults and children and so forth, that many people assume that if you're celiac and the gluten picture, it's all loose stools, where what we find clinically is that if you're gluten intolerant, you're more likely to be constipated Exactly. versus those with true celiac disease, which have uncontrollable bowels in a lot of cases. Yeah,
1: rapid transit. Yes. Yeah.
0: So it, it's... An, it's amazing how the body works and how that neural nerve feedback works from your brain to your gut because the vagus nerve innervates your stomach and the diaphragm and all your bowels. And then the return feedback to your brain is tremendous from exactly. that because there's a uh, communication both ways.
1: Yeah, and again, the, the, the central nervous system, we, we would hope, is the director of all that sometimes it gets it gets dysregulated when the vagal nerve gets dysregulated when vagus nerve gets dysregulated then the interventions have got to be aimed at calming that down and there's easy things to do i mean you can uh, take a cold shower Uh, just turn off all the hot water for the last 30 seconds of your shower will will increase vagal nerve tone you can sing out loud in the car as long as you don't have anybody in there with you. Uh, you, you can you know, you can scream and yell. You can put your face in a bowl of ice water for as long as you can hold your breath. There's lots of things you can do. St- stimulate the gag reflex while you're brushing your teeth. You know before you brush your teeth, you can know, put it on the back of your tongue to you stimulate that gag response. That that's is that's
0: before breakfast too. Uh, yes,
1: before breakfast as well, before you've eaten. But those things can in, induce that yeah. um, uh, vagal uh, nerve tone. Uh, essentially, what we're trying to do is uh, in people with low tone, uh, the sympathetic nervous system is dominating. And what we want is to increase the parasympathetic nervous system, para, alongside. Right. That's what it really means, to come alongside to keep the sympathetic nervous system from dominating. Um and most of us know people who are, uh, who have low vagal nerve tone. They tend to be very irritable, have that short fuse. Uh, they tend to go into chest wall muscle breathing when they're anxious. So instead of breathing diaphragmatically, uh, they, they do rapid, shallow breathing. And all of those things are, are the sign of, of poor vagal nerve tone.
0: Well, that's why one of the simple things that you teach, Cameron teaches at my office, is... proper breathing to help control that sympathetic, parasympathetic uh, system, calm the sympathetic down, increase the parasympathetic. Exactly.
1: If you want to see what what the picture of of low vagal nerve tone is, look at a two-year-old or a three-year-old in a temper tantrum. That's precisely what that uh, poor nerve tone is. They haven't learned to control their own... Uh, vagal nerve tone, I don't even know what it is, uh, but they immediately go into rapid, uh, shallow breathing, right. uh, uh, out of control, physical e- uh, externalization of their stress, uh, screaming, crying. Um, but if you want to see great vagal nerve tone, watch a baby sleeping. Those deep, deep, deep breaths and, right. and uh, the very relaxed uh, body posture. And so uh, we know how to do these things, we just have to remember so them.
0: Give us an example of how to calm that sympathetic nervous system down with your breathing techniques.
1: So um, w- one of the things that we have people do is to put, place a hand on their chest and okay. another on their belly, just right below their rib cage, right. and to breathe naturally or normally. And watch what hands move. If that top hand is the one that's moving and the bottom hand isn't, well, then you're using your chest wall muscles to breathe and you're gonna be predisposed to poor nerve tail. It's, it's a sign of that. So, the way to overcome that is, is to do a little bit of plank in your chair and to take some deep, deep, deep breaths, see that top hand move, our bottom hand move, and that top hand stay still, and then to increase your breath cycle length so that you're going all the way in. You hold it for a count, generally of 20 to 30, and then let it out slowly, slowly, slowly let it out, and then hold there again, and do that for about 10 or 15 breath cycles, and do that throughout the day. And uh, you'll feel yourself being calmer coming out of
0: that. So you count, how many, how long do you count on the in, inhale, inhalation part of it?
1: So I, so it depends on how long you've been doing that. So I've been doing diaphragmatic breathing now for about Forty years, we learned to do it in the military. Believe yeah. it or not, when I was learning how to shoot, because exactly. uh, you, you can't shoot if you're not if you're breathing erratically. And so, um, I can do uh, maybe two breath cycles a minute. Um, we recommend people do more like five to six breath cycles a minute, so they're not holding their breath to where they're gasping at the end of it. Right, and then to just let it out slowly. In through your nose, out through your mouth. That's kind of like okay. one of the keys.
0: Well, one of the things I've heard, in to the count of four, hold for the count of four, and out for the count of four.
1: So it depends on how you count to four, right? Yeah, you do exactly. one, two, well, three, are you doing 1,001, 1,002, which is what most people do when they're yeah. doing a count of four. But yeah, So just,
0: four seconds in, how long the hold?
1: Again, you you want to hold until you feel the urge to exhale.
0: Okay. Yeah, and that's the optimal.
1: That's the optimal, okay. uh, and it'll take you. Well, the longer you do it, the longer it'll be before you have the urge to sure. exhale. Sure. So, uh, as soon as you feel the urge to exhale, then exhale, exhale through your mouth, and blow it all out. You want to feel like you're getting it all the way out. And when you're breathing in, you want to draw it like you're feeling like you're pulling that breath all the way down into your toes. You to pull it as deeply as you can, and then hold it. And initially, it'll give you a little bit of a burn sensation. You'll feel like you got a little bit of lung burn going on there. But eventually, you'll be taking it. There, there's an estimation that Americans probably only take uh, 25 to 30 percent of the lung capacity as they're breathing. They don't take full breaths. Um, and again, one of the things that we have with smart devices like Apple Watches uh, is that it'll measure your your you know your breath your breath cycle, and it'll give you an estimation of your uh, vo2 max it'll give you an indication or an approximation of how much air you're actually getting in when it is that you do breathe and it's a measure of breathing efficiency
0: so i often wonder and you may have the answer as how much focus like on the apple watch for these vital signs or the monitoring of your breathing is healthy and how much is Getting into the OCD type realm, right? So, because I see people come in really focused on just one area or another area, and it's really caused imbalance in their thought process. So, how do you help those people and, and help them to get focused on the the right amount of knowledge monitoring uh, versus being overly concerned?
1: Well, you raise an interesting point, and that is, can we focus on our health to the neglect of our health? And the answer is, yeah, we can focus on anything to the neglect of things that are, are really important. Um, we encourage tech breaks, even from your your health monitoring devices, and so. Uh, I know that people want to track their sleep, and then they want to track their steps, and they want to track their calories, and they even have programs now where you can take pictures of what you're going to eat with your phone and estimate your calorie intake based on the picture. Um, you can go overboard with that. Uh, we, we, would, we would suggest that you uh, monitor those things uh, once a day, uh, not all day. And the best time to do it is just before you go into your evening mindfulness exercise where you're getting rid of all technology. The last thing you, you, know, you, you close out is that health stats. Just take a perusal through it. Notice what you notice about what you're doing amongst all the things that it measures. And don't focus on any one to the neglect of the others. And then put it down. If you're spending any more than five to seven minutes a day looking at your health stats, you're, 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 you're misusing the tool. The tool wasn't designed for you to focus on for any significant part of your day.
0: So we just talked about how to kind of calm yourself down. If you find yourself becoming anxious, uh, kind of irritable, that type of thing. And the breathing exercises during the day is a super easy way to do that. You can do it wherever you are. Exactly. Just take a couple minutes. Uh, do the breathing exercises that will help calm the brain, calm your whole body system down. You just mentioned about uh, using smart devices, watching TV. Uh, how, how, what? And that's helping to calm your brain down at night is to give your brain a rest. What do you perceive as a, as a healthy type? pattern during the day on on how you structure a a healthy day and then how you get yourself set up for a healthy sleep at night?
1: Well, one of the things we tell people is that smart devices will make you stupid. You got to be really careful with how you're using your smart technology. First of all, don't introduce it to your children um, in an all at once fashion. So we don't don't hand them a smart device at um, elementary school and then have unlimited access to that device you know during the waking day uh, there should be there should be limits on it and um again kids we've seen it we've gone into rooms with children who all have smart devices and they can be sitting next to the person that they're communicating with but they're doing it over their smart device they're not even talking to one another i i we've seen adults do that and all be in the same room together, but they've got their phones out. Um, and so, um, we need to disconnect from those as often as we can, as much as we can. So that those things don't dominate our lives. Part of the problem is is that many of us have busy schedule, have moved our schedule over there. We get our email there. We get our text messages, our phone calls, um, our directions to get to and from places. And so, we are interacting with them a, a lot, and, and sometimes it's healthy, and at other times it's not. So the question is, well, when is it not? Well, when it's keeping us from being able to interact with people because we're having to check our phones mm-hmm. and we're having to attend to what's going on on our smart device instead of the person that's right in front of us. So we re- I recommend you have a place to park your device when, it's, when you don't need to have access to it. Uh, a, lot of com- a lot of corporations now are recognizing that there's a significant loss uh, of time and dedicated effort to the company due to smart devices. And so they now are requiring employees uh, to lock them away in a central location. And you have to come check your device out. You can't just, you know, can't use it all the time because of time lost. And so uh, the devices themselves have the ability to track your usage of them. And if, if you find out that during the waking day, you're using those devices more than three or four hours, you're probably in the danger zone of too much usage. In the 45 minutes before you go to bed, you should eliminate all, size, all, all of those devices altogether. Um, a lot of the devices, you can now take the blue light away from them so that they don't affect um, the onset of sleep as much and get smart device to induce insomnia. Uh, but people think that, well, if I just use my filters, then I can use it all the way up until bedtime. And no, because you're still stimulating yourself with the information that you're consuming. And I say, well, I can read a book on it. Get a paper get a paper copy and read it the old-fashioned way. Go old school with your nighttime reading. Um, use yellow lights or incandescent lights or, or those that can mimic warm light. The LEDs now can be tunable to warm lights. Uh, do that. again in the 45 minutes uh, turn the TV off you know put your iPad away Uh, don't sleep in the same room as your smart devices so I I hear people say why use it for my alarm clock go to Target and get you a $5 alarm clock you don't need to use your smart device to to wake you up Um, now I think the exception would be and where I would be willing to fudge a little is if they're using um, an Apple watch to track their sleep Uh, then you know, you could have that tech because it knows to silence your itself from all, you know, texts and things like that phone calls. So that would be the maybe one exception is the, the, uh, smart worn devices that help track your sleep. Otherwise get them out of the bedroom. Well, for one of the things you get an EMF from, them. Uh, the electromagnetic fields are all around us. And if we have, uh, Cell phones on, iPads on, things like that. Those things are radiating us, particularly if they're within six feet of our heads while we're trying to sleep. So it's best to get those in another room, plug them in, turn them off. That, that's the best thing to do with those. Things.
0: Exactly. Uh, so we've talked a lot about you know, assessment, being aware of your own body, uh, how you're functioning and what you're doing uh, to cause dysfunction whether it's food you eat, the devices you're using, uh, putting yourself in situations where it creates anxiety or stress. Um, And then we've talked about how to assess the individual, whether it's with food sensitivities, uh, QEG to assess your brain function, whether you had TBI. And as you've stated, anybody that has played sports to any extent that requires a helmet or hitting the ball, or you've fallen and hit your head or fall, fallen off your bicycle. Uh, it's important that assessment be made to see about TBI. Yes. And the easiest, most economical way to do that is with a QEEG.
1: Absolutely, so, the, so the, it's got great facility. Uh, it's relatively inexpensive when compared to other uh, neuroimaging techniques. It is a functional brain study. It is not a structural study. So you think of structural studies as being like MRIs, uh, CT scans, um, X-rays. Those look at the structure of the body. Um, functional imaging, like uh, SPECT, single photon emission, computed tomography, uh, functional MRI, FMRI, uh, PET scans, positron emission tomography, or QEG, quantitative electroencephalography, those are specifically looking at brain function. So how's the brain working or not? And um, the, of all of those, EEG is by far the least expensive. Uh, you don't have to climb inside a tube and listen to you know loud sounds like Woody Woodpecker banging on your skull. Sure. Uh, it's, it's, it's passive. We're sensing the electrical activity that's coming off the scalp. So we're not talking about anything that's gonna, we, we're introducing any radioactive isotope into your body like we do with SPECT or PET or FMRI. We're just looking at what's coming off the head. It can be done in, in an hour. Uh, the results are almost immediately available. And uh, and we have some great insight into um, how you're functioning. The only caveat about QEG that differentiates it from the other studies is is that we cannot use it diagnostically. In other words, we don't diagnose a head injury with QEG. We have a head injury either by diagnosis or history before we do the test, and then we see what are the functional deficits as a consequence of that.
0: Well, none of the other functional tests actually are diagnostic of a head injury, Um, unless you have a significant traumatic brain injury where it's actually killed the brain cells Right, it, it, F, it
1: fMRI being a hybrid can do yeah. a little both the structural and functional, and so it's, it. But it's rarely used that way.
0: Um, uh, exactly, and it's quite expensive, right. and most insurances won't pay exactly. for it. Exactly. And early on, I used spec scan quite a bit, but the cost of spec scan has just gone up astronomically, and so for a person that is cash paying or their insurance won't pay for it, a spec scan can cost. Oh, or $5,000. Right. And unless and, we're
1: expecting Parkinson's, you know, and things, or we want to differentiate it from maybe Lewy body dementia, then we would do a spec scan, just a D, the DAT of the spec, just to see whether or not, you know, we might have ex- a disease Exactly. Process.
0: But that's... Uh, Barrier case. Yeah. You know, and and that's generally paid for by insurance if you suspect Parkinson's... Right. That, test uh, yeah, that, that test is indicated. Yeah. That test is indicated with it. So as we... We go through. We've got the, made some diagnostic testing or done some diagnostic testing, uh, kind of focused in on what the person's goal is. Uh, then, what treatment modalities uh, are effective or available out there to, to that you use? And I'll talk about some of what I use to right. to help the person actually heal. We talked about uh, the breathing techniques for. Right just the, the anxiety part or calming your, your system down. What other techniques then? You talked about neurofeedback as, as a technique. Can you explain a little bit on, on how those are used and, and how okay. you use them what you see as a result?
1: So I'm gonna back up just a hair. So I, I told you the process we use, we kind of uh, label it, assess, address, and reassess. And so the, the point of the assessment is to find out the what and where and we hope that we have convergent validity, which is a technical term that all that means is that all the tests that we're doing are pointing to the same thing or things. And sure. so, our neurocognitive test is is pointing to memory, mood, and. Uh, Maybe attention issues. And then our QEG is pointing to that. And our neurotransmitter and stress hormones are saying there's a phenylethylamine, PEA deficiency. Well, that's going to affect attention. And there's a dopamine deficiency. It's also going to affect attention and and mood a little. And serotonin and GABA may be low, or glutamate may be high. Those things can affect mood and memory, and uh, also uh, attention and focus uh, drive so to speak. So now we have all these tests that are saying, hey, we've got issues that are going on in the brain and body that are related to mood, memory, and focus. So our interventions are going to be related to mood, memory, and focus. And so we may do neurofeedback and work on the frontal lobes and the limbic lobe to re-regulate that chain. Uh, we may be doing photobiomodulation, which is infrared, near-infrared, and red light therapy to increase cerebral blood flow and oxygenation and and, uh, mitochondrial DNA activity. Uh, And it's been shown through research that if you can increase cerebral blood flow and oxygenation, you do two things. You give the brain more of what it needs, oxygen to to burn uh, for metabolic things, but you also increase the trash hauling capability of the bloodstream to, to move toxins out of the tissues. Our brains are 80% glial fat by volume. So we're, our brains are mostly fat. Well, toxins love fat. That's where they hide out. And so uh, the toxic burden of the brain is dramatically uh, impacted by the fat, uh, by the fat and, and the uh, toxin, toxic burden of the brain. And so you've got to find out a way to oxygenate and you can either do it through increasing exercise through photobiomodulation or for those who really have ac- acute issues, uh, hyperbaric oxygen therapy, as you well know, uh, is, is the best way to get at that because well, we can saturate those tissues uh, right. with oxygen.
0: Well, typically all the modalities that you're talking about require oxygen to be carried by hemoglobin. Correct. And so it, whether exercise, which is to increase his blood flow, Increases oxygen delivery to the to the cells by hemoglobin. Where with hyperbaric oxygen, which we use and I use in my office all the time to enhance healing, you saturate the whole blood vessel, the serum as well, so that you have ten to fifteen times more transport than you normally would, regardless of what you're doing of oxygen. It's a supercharging to, to the tissues, right? And so we see enhancement of uh, repair. And enhancement of recovery in all kinds of different areas, uh, particularly brain health when it comes to recovery from concussion. Uh, typically, it's, people may take up to thirty days to recover from a concussion. With hyperbaric studies have showed eighty uh, percent recover within five days.
1: So some of my patients struggle with post concussions equally for as long as two, three, five years. Oh uh, yes, yeah. uh, and and so. Uh, one of the things that we found is that uh, doing red light therapy over the carotids uh, while a person is laying down not only increases that oxygenation uh, uh, or actually increases blood flow, right. um, you also get a, uh, a boost in the function of the glymphatic system. And uh, the glymphatic system is incredibly important for healing from injury and, uh, and from reducing toxic burden so and things like red light therapy are becoming more and more accessible um you, you can buy those things off of amazon now and and really uh, are helpful um we've also n- f- discovered with photobiomodulation this red light therapy right that your body position actually has a lot to do with how well the intervention works and so using a neck wrap with a red light or infrared therapy while you're laying down is going to have a significantly greater uh, effect than if you're sitting up or standing. And so how to use these devices really can be enhanced by cons- consult with a functional medicine professional who knows how to use that particular technology. And unfortunately, there aren't a lot of us out there. And and so patients really don't know, well, who do I talk to? I, I, I've seen this thing advertised. I get it on my Facebook. You know, I get this red light therapy thing on my face, I, but I don't know how to use it. And well, so, that, that'd
0: be excellent. Another session to be, ha- have together to, as, to bring in some of the devices, uh, show exactly how they should be used, uh, what's the best way to use them, and what's underuse or overuse because. More is not necessarily exactly. better in a lot of cases.
1: If not most, right? Exactly.
0: Exactly. And so, so
1: we talked about hyperbaric, and, and I'm a big believer in hyperbaric. Dr. Amen actually is the one that turned me on to hyperbaric. Uh, and um, I know the Amon Clinics here in DFW sends uh, their patients to you for hyperbaric because uh, yes. they recognize the, va- the value of hyperbaric oxygen therapy. Neurofeedback, which is EEG biofeedback, is a wonderful uh, way to get at this. I, I have found that using it in combination with any other intervention is generally better than using it by itself. So we can combine it with photobiomodulation, we can combine it with targeted nutritional supplements, we can complement it with an exercise program, but we, we very rarely do neurofeedback by itself. Um, and many times we need to do counseling or psychotherapy because as the brain changes, then the person becomes aware and sometimes more acutely aware of other things in their life that are causing them stress or discomfort. And so having the ability to talk to somebody about how to make changes and implement them in their life in relationships or job environment, things like, and having somebody to be able to talk about and process those things, is really important. And so um, coaching, brain health coaching is a great way to do that. You don't necessarily need to talk to a licensed psychotherapist, although there are times when that's absolutely essential. Um, But being able to talk to a brain health coach or a health coach in in general can be extremely helpful about how do I incorporate these changes that are coming as a result of all these good things that I'm doing? Because you're going to find resistance. I mean, you think about couples. Anytime one of the spouses decides to get healthy, there's gonna be pushback from the other spouse who may not be ready to be healthy. They may not be ready to take on diet, sleep and exercise changes. And so being able to talk to somebody who can keep you uh, encouraged to to keep doing those things that are making you feel better and uh, and not feel like you're leaving your spouse in the lurch, but like when they're ready to get healthy and when maybe when they see me feeling better, happier, more engaged with life, um, then they'll, hey, I want to do that too. And then you're in a better place to help, but yeah. you don't want to conflict over that.
0: Yeah. The other day, a, a patient brought in a workbook that they bought off the internet for, uh, and they I looked it up and they have all kinds of workbooks now you can buy to help with your behavioral problems, whether it's a borderline personality disorder or whatever uh, have you looked at those workbooks and are, there's are they?
1: some are better than other. it's it's kind of like the old joke about the guy that goes into the bookstore and he <laughs> asks for the self-help section and the, the the person in the store says well if i told you that would defeat the purpose and uh, so i, I mean the, the idea of self-help is um i mean there, it can be empowering uh, but all of these things come with a philosophical underpinning or a a perspective that they come from, um, and, and you need to be aware that there's baggage with all of those things. So, I mean, be a smart consumer. Um, you you certainly, if you know, if you're an evangelical Christian or a Catholic, may not find a particular book that comes at it from shamanism or from the perspective of Zen Buddhism is going to be particularly helpful. Although it might, there might be some things in there that you find are very helpful. Uh, generally, we encourage people to stay within their um, faith system or belief system, the, the, their framework for their worldview, um, and get not too far outside that, because that can induce other anxieties that can then become a problem in and of themselves. Exactly. So just be careful.
0: So the message is, is it, it is important to get guidance as you go through with this, and I find that that's very important, because people come in asking me all the time, well... I want to do this therapy or I want to do that therapy, well, is that therapy appropriate? Exactly. And and so you have to go back to the basics that we've been talking about of, you know, what is the underlying cause, what is is the main issue, and then once you define that, just as you, you pointed out here in our discussion, then you can have a plan to help for improvement and hopefully healing and cure.
1: Well, so as, as folks are searching, if you get on the internet and you're looking for, who, who can I find to help me with this? I've heard about neurofeedback, well, I want to do neurofeedback. Be a really wise consumer. There's a lot of people out today who put on their websites that they're a neurofeedback provider um but they may have gone to a, a bought an equipment from a vendor the vendor did a weekend workshop and said they're certified to do that well that that is not the kind of certification that you want your provider to have you want an, a, a nationally or internationally recognized board certification that's connected to a clinical license in some way and uh and get your um, neurofeedback or biofeedback or other interventions from that person. So, uh, for example, for neurofeedback, there is one certifying body in the United States for biofeedback and neurofeedback providers, It's the Biofeedback Certification International Alliance, BCIA, and they have different certifications. They have certifications for neurofeedback, for biofeedback, for pelvic muscle floor dysfunction, and for heart rate variability. If you're going to have the most complicated system in the universe, which is your brain, trained, you don't want to do it by somebody who went to a workshop one weekend and then decides to start sticking electrodes on people's heads. You want somebody who's had documented, supervised experience and training and have passed a rigorous certification exam and gone through mentoring. And for many people, it takes two years to get the certification. that's who you want working with your brain. You do not want one uh, somebody working with your brain who just bought equipment and may not even have a degree in a brain health field who's working with, again, the most complicated system that we know of in the universe is the human brain.
0: That, that's very important because you hear people coming in and say, well, I tried that and it didn't work or I'm worse in some cases.
1: Precisely.
0: And... The next question is, well, who did you see, uh, and what did they actually do? Right. And, and so many times you hear uh, equipment used inappropriately. Uh, they're working on the wrong thing. Uh, they're following a cookbook protocol, which has really nothing to do with what is your that individual's problem. Exactly. So that's a, at at our office and in, in your practice, uh, we. Focus on looking at the main problem, having the appropriate test done, uh, then having the appropriate prescribed treatment for that, and having people do it that are well trained, like yourself, like your son Cameron. Uh, that makes all the difference. It
1: does. And if you don't see those letters BCN or BCIAN or bcb if you don't see those uh, certification uh, the credentials behind a person's name you really should be careful and um you know it's a caveat MTAR, buyer beware if 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 you're not going to a certified person you really can't expect much and you know there's a lot of things you can do when you're when you're researching you can look and see um, is there any research been published with uh, the equipment or software that's being used And do they say there's a potential for harm? Because if there's a potential for good stuff, if it's used correctly, there's also potential for harm if if it's not used correctly. Um, What are the experiences of this particular clinician worth working with what you have? So if they're an ADHD specialist, um, you may wanna consider going to somebody else if you have a mood or anxiety issue. If they're a general practitioner, How long have they been doing this? How many years of experience do they have? Uh, If you're doing neurofeedback, every neurofeedback intervention should be preceded by an EEG assessment. It can be done with fewer than 19 channels. You don't have to do the whole head. But some sort of assessment needs to be done prior to the intervention. Um, We prefer the quantitative 19-channel EEG so we can see everything in two and three dimensions. But not everybody has that you know, Keep latest, rolling. greatest, yeah. state-of-the-art te- uh, techniques. But they should proceed whatever they do. We have a little moniker that we use at our practice. We don't move anything before we measure it first. And anything that we move, we continue to measure to make sure that we're headed in the right direction. So, you know, it's kind of like moving your furniture in the house. You know, if you may move it two feet to you, to to the right, but your wife comes in and goes, Hey, I wanted that moved two feet, but I want to move two feet to the left. And so we want to make sure that we're moving things in the correct direction. And the only way we can do that is to measure frequently. And your practice and my practice, because we follow the same standards, every five to ten sessions we're re-measuring to make sure that things are headed in the right direction. And we do that with all of our interventions, not just with neurofeedback.
0: Yeah, exactly. And and that's so important because people then can see what their progress is. And uh, one of the things uh, that I see frequently and you were talking about toxins earlier, is mold toxins. Uh, For years and years, uh, I've dealt with toxic exposures affecting individuals. Back in the early 80s, it was more solvents, uh, volatile chemicals. Mm -hmm. Then it became herbicides, pesticides. Mm -hmm. And as people became aware of the toxicity of those, uh, government has uh, labeled them. Made people aware, made uh, MSDS sheets available, which is what's in the chemical in the in the workplace. So we see a lot fewer workplace exposures or inadvertent exposures to like pesticides and herbicides. Right. But now we're seeing exposures to mold. Yes. And mold, certain molds, the black molds, produce toxins which are lipophilic, which you were talking about.
1: Fat loving.
0: That yep. they stick to the fat. They stay in the system, in your body's system, and they're hard to get out. Right. And they affect the nervous system. So I see that every day in the office uh, of people that have had their brains affected by their indoor environment uh, from the mold toxins. The molds produce a chemical uh and the mold can grow behind the wall, under the counter, Absolutely. behind the shower, and you can't find the spores necessarily, but the chemical is in your air. Yeah. Yeah. And you breathe that chemical, you bioaccumulate it, uh, and then it sticks to the cells and it's hard to get out. And they show up with abnormalities as we've been talking about from the toxic effect, where people are fatigued, brain fog, uh, have gastrointestinal problems because it affects the vagus nerve, the digestion process, they get joint pains and aches. uh, And then you have to treat the neurotoxins. And as you were talking about, you got to use antioxidants to help with that. Uh, We look at the brain dysfunction with the techniques you've been talking about. And then many times we have to treat those people with hyperbaric to really force the systems with because oxygen and glucose are the two main ingredients needed for mitochondrial function, for detoxification process to occur.
1: Yeah, and your brain consumes, you know, 20% of your resting state oxygen, but it also consumes anywhere between 20 and 40% of your blood glucose. And so the brain, the brain is an energy resource pig. It, it's only three pounds of glial fat and, and water, and yet it consumes a disproportionate share of the, of the body's resources. One of the things that you said reminds me another one of our, our sayings at the office, of which we have many. And one is that we don't remodel the house while it's still on fire. And so until we put the inflammation out, we don't really do very many remedial interventions. We The first thing we do is go after uh, inflammation with a vengeance. So because if we don't, we, all the good things that we're doing will just get burned up by the inflammation. So we gotta find the source of inflammation, address it, and then we can start the remodeling process. But I, it, I mean, it's a, it's a great analogy. Yeah. If your house is on fire, you wouldn't call the remodeling guy. You'd, call the fire department.
0: Oh, e- exactly. And I see people all the time that have mold exposure that they've been trying to fix themselves or get healed, still living in the damp, moldy environment. Yeah. And that just doesn't work. Yeah. The same thing with GI problems. Um, people have come in with c- chronic complaints of gastrointestinal problems, and they've seen uh, different gastroenterologists, four or five different ones. They still aren't better, and they're still putting the same allergic foods down their intestinal tract
1: or you're taking it you,
0: you can't heal it with the inflammation being created from what you're eating or
1: you re, you they're, they're looking on the internet and they're seeing all these advertisements for probiotics and then you look at it and the probiotic and prebiotic are packaged together and they don't realize that they their probiotic is actually getting in the prebiotics getting away the probiotic in many in many occasions particularly if they've got small intestinal bacterial overgrowth to begin with, or SIBO. So they've got a little bit of this irritation going in their gut because the the, uh, uh, acid-loving birds of the small intestine have been outnumbered by the alkaline-loving, you know, large intestinal bacterial flora. And so they've got this dysbiosis going on, and then they're putting prebiotic in with a probiotic which just makes things worse and it you know if they would separate them but they're not talking to functional medicine folks and Mm -hmm. so they they don't understand that that thing that that should be doing good for them isn't going to do any good for them because an assessment wasn't done to begin with to say what's the right strategy here and and how do we handle that the
0: strategy is the most important because even the test that we do for gi whatever it is function will not tell you what the problem is unless you have a safe food diet to begin with. Exactly. And so it, it has to do with that initial exposure. Uh, you've been most helpful today in it's been your, fun. Your, your insight in how to approach brain health and just a healthy lifestyle um, and what we can do, some simple things that we can do uh, to get started. Uh, pay attention to the foods that we're eating. Mm-hmm. If you notice that your stomach's upset after dairy or after um, spiced, I see a lot of people that are sensitive to onion mm-hmm. or garlic creates a problem. Or the nightshades. Or, or the nightshades. Uh, a lot of times, the two biggest things are dairy and gluten, mm-hmm. uh, from the food standpoint. Uh, then appreciate all you've said about the sleep patterns uh how we think about our day getting our day organized and then uh, what modalities are present and useful that are readily available at your office at my office to help people with their brain health uh, and getting through each day in a healthy joyful manner Thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks, Dr.
1: Johnson. My folks at Brain Behavior Associates and I really appreciate the invite. Thank you. Well,
0: you're welcome. Thank you for all your information and your time today. Thanks. You're welcome.